Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Rachel Johnson back to the program. For those uh, meeting you for the very first time, Rachel, you are a Young Voices contributor, but uh, you wear a few other hats as well. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yes. um, So I work at a D.C.-based think tank in government affairs. And as a Young Voices contributor, I focus on issues relating to health policy, drug policy, harm reduction, all that good stuff. All right, and we've got a doozy of an article to discuss today. I, I say a doozy because I know this is just controversial in, in some circles, but uh, this is an article you wrote for freethepeople.org. It's high time to legalize marijuana. Sorry, I'm going to pause for a moment here while some people clutch their chest or clutch their pearls and <laughs> they're like, what? Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. How many states right now have legalized marijuana in some form, either medicinal or sometimes you know medicinal and recreational? Yeah, I'll say there are a number of states who have legalized it, and it's growing, you know, every year. I know that that ballot initiative and the people overwhelmingly voted to um, legalize marijuana. So I think that we're seeing um, it, it is still absolutely a controversial issue, but we're seeing so many different states on both sides of the political spectrum. Ohio, sometimes considered more and more of a red state, the people there are also still voting to legalize marijuana. So I think that we are seeing it become a little bit less and less of a of a hotly contested issue, but we are um, still seeing a little bit of that debate and so, letting that play out. Let's let's walk it back a little bit now and and talk a little bit about how did marijuana end up being uh, being made illegal in the first place? I, I know most of us kind of just grew up with the idea, well, it always has been, but that wasn't always true, was it? No, it was not. So actually going back uh, centuries, marijuana had been kind of thought of as it's a plant, you know, medicinal purposes. And that um, some of like the fathers of modern medicine had considered it a, a great cure for headaches, had seen the medicinal value of marijuana. But a lot of this really goes back to uh, President Nixon starting the, the war on drugs, the drug war. Um, and in the article, I do quote one of his, you know, former senior advisors to President Nixon, who was explaining that, oh, well, we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war in Vietnam, but we could make different drugs illegal that are associated with like hippies and counterculture movements, and in particular, black people. So he has this quote where he says, we'd want people to associate the hippies and like these anti-war protesters with marijuana and black people with heroin, and that way we can go in and use the war on drugs to disrupt these different groups, uh, go after their leaders, and kind of attach more of a stigma and give them the power to go in and and disrupt these different groups that way um, by association with these different drugs. Um, And I think that we're still seeing a lot of that mentality play out. You know, even in, in elementary school, we have the D.A.R.E. program that is very much that abstinence only um that leads people to not have the proper harm reduction tools if they are going to use drugs you need to know how to do it safely i personally of course do not um but if people are going to do it anyway we want them to be safe when they're doing it and i think that that this goes back to really the start of the war on drugs and you know we still see that mentality throughout our society. I was surprised in your article to see that there is actually some movement at the federal level uh, within the Department of Health and Human Services where um, 
there, there is actually a call being put out for, hey, maybe it is time to revisit the, the scheduling of, of marijuana, taking it from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 3 drug. Can you explain what the significance is between the, the way those drugs are, are classified? Yes, absolutely. So marijuana currently is a Schedule 1 drug, and the Controlled Substances Act kind of defines Schedule 1, 2, and 3. Schedule 1 um, has kind of two different metrics that they look at these under. One is the currently accepted medical use, Schedule 1 being no currently accepted medical use. And then it also goes toward kind of potential for abuse. So Schedule 1 is no currently accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. Other Schedule 1 drugs right now are heroin and LSD. And I think that most of us can kind of come to the the conclusion that marijuana is far less uh, harmful than heroin or LSD, and that it does certainly have an accepted medical use. So Schedule 1, marijuana is currently there with LSD and heroin, and the um, folks at the HHS were asking the DEA to move it to, as you said, Schedule 3, which basically means moderate to low potential for abuse and some uh, accepted medical use. Um, and while certainly that would be a, a a great step toward the right direction, and we, I know I would appreciate having that change, um, I was also encouraged to see that there were 31 members of the House of Representatives who then sent a letter to the, the DEA after this call from the HHS, um, urging them to consider descheduling altogether, that, that rescheduling really won't help address the real um, criminal justice inequities and harm of having it schedule one for so long. So there are calls for even further action, but it is absolutely a, a great change that we're seeing the HHS ask them to at least reconsider the scheduling, because I think we can all, even if we don't want, even if there are folks that don't want to see it completely legalized and descheduled, you you can see that there is at least some accepted medical use, and we don't want it to be schedule one with heroin. Yeah, that's one of the most frustrating things, because I'm, I'm firmly on the side of it never should have been made illegal in the first place. You know, people people uh, prior to its uh, its criminalization, uh, it, it was nobody's business. If you grew it, if you, you know, if you smoked it, if you used it in, you know, medical terms, like with, with a tincture or whatever, that was no one's business. But um, the, the idea, it's very dangerous. It's so dangerous. In fact, that seems to me to be coming primarily from people whose jobs, I'm looking at the DEA on this, you know, depend on keeping things illegal so that they have that job security of knowing, hey, we're needed to, to fight this you know, danger. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this just goes back to what I was saying about the, the Nixon administration and that senior advisor that, again, I quote in the article, um, he admits that, you know, this was never evidence-based we knew that we were lying about how dangerous the drugs were, but when you have that going back for so long, it's kind of hard to move away from that kind of dogma and actually take an evidence-based approach. And you had mentioned, too, that, you know, states have, have kind of engaged in a, a form of nullification where many of them have, have gone ahead and opened the door. You know, Utah, I was surprised, but they they opened the door to medicinal uh, marijuana. Um Oklahoma actually surprised me. You mentioned Ohio being kind of a red state. Oklahoma's a really red state. And yet uh, they have, they've really, you know, decriminalized a lot of this, made it possible. If people want to open up a dispensary, I think there's less obstacles there than, than pretty much any other state that I'm aware of. Yes, absolutely. It's definitely, we're seeing this kind of patchwork 
um, work out with the states, which is, again, one of the reasons why I would prefer descheduling to rescheduling is that it would make it so much more cohesive as the states do what they want to do. Currently, there are a bunch of issues with like banking, um, dispensaries having to to use cash only um, because it is still federally illegal and schedule one. It would make it much easier for the states that do go ahead and um, legalize to have that federal um, removal and descheduling. And as far as the medical research, um, again, I, I only know this because I spent some time working with a think tank in Utah that was was helping to um, move, you know, toward public policy that would incorporate uh, medicinal cannabis. But I guess Israel is one of the nations that has actually done an immense amount of medical research. I mean, we're talking true peer-reviewed studies on on the plant, and you know they've only scratched the surface. But it's it's clear it's it's not even close to the same thing as say PCP. Oh, yes, absolutely. There's, you know, many medicinal issues. I think that we all hear about um, marijuana being very popular amongst veterans to deal with PTSD. And of all groups of people, you don't want to, you know, have these harsh criminal penalties going towards veterans. So we want to help people. We don't want to, we're not, you know, being reckless. We want to make sure that we take a real evidence-based approach. And as you've said, the research is really the evidence and research is showing that it is, you know, available for these medical uses and shouldn't be treated as harshly as it is now. It seems like the biggest obstacle has been and continues to be convincing uh, people within government uh, authority to uh, to step back from that authority or to, to accept a, a shrinking of their authority. For some reason, they don't seem to like that idea. Absolutely. I think that they're worried about, you know, the fear mongering that goes along with this issue. They don't want to be seen as sort of soft on crime. But when you see the real evidence behind this, it's not it shouldn't be that association that we've had for so many years and that it is this way that people can, you know, treat PTSD, other issues that they might have or even just use it recreationally in a safe way where they're not hurting other people. You know, I've as a libertarian, I am all for letting people do what they want to do as long as they're not going out and harming others. And and we would then take action if people are going and harming other individuals, but want to, to have people have that freedom. Again, we're talking with Rachel Johnson. She is a Young Voices contributor. Rachel, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L underscore Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-0-N on Twitter. And we are back. It's our second segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome Alex Little. He is an MS graduate of Georgia Tech and specializes in Russian and Central Asian affairs, also a contributor with Young Voices. Alex, good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Brian. So tell us just a little bit about yourself before we dive into our topic of the day. Sure. So I'm as, a, as you mentioned, I'm an MS graduate. I'm currently an intern at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and I mostly follow, focus on Russia, Central Asia, and the South Caucasus. And so I'm actually working on a large paper um, related to the topic of the op-ed that we will be discussing today. So I'm very excited to discuss this topic with you. Yeah, this is the headline for the topic. It's, it's uh, Biden wants to alienate China, Russia, and China from uranium trade relations. And this this gets me 
first of all, questioning a little bit about, um, I know there, there's a huge push globally toward clean energy. And, and I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, Alex, is, is uranium part of that, uh, that clean energy solution? Absolutely. So this commodity is actually in very high demand in, in the current moment. And so countries are really sort of trying to secure secure uh, chains of transport for this particular commodity. And so the United States has really been looking for alternative partners to secure uranium. And so Kazakhstan, as I found through my research, is actually a very prolific supplier to the United States of uranium. So um, relations with Kazakhstan will only be more important in the future for the United States. So how do Russia and China figure into this? I can only assume that they likewise have, have need for uranium as well. Absolutely. So China is the most prolific um, actor in terms of these rare earth metals, as they're called. And so China has really been cooperating with the Central Asian powers, given that they are in close proximity of China. Um, and China sort of wants to maintain a certain amount of control. But as I mentioned in my piece, these Central Asian countries really do not want to be beholden to one particular power. And so even though that China wants this sort of monopoly, these countries are really not going to um, jive with this in the future. So China will eventually have to cooperate with these countries and accept their, as it's called, a multi-vector foreign policy. The same applies to Russia, which is Central Asia's security guarantor, but it's also highly ingratiated in Central Asian economies. So Russia actually does a lot of the processing of these rare earth metals like uranium. But Russia similarly will also have to come to terms with the Central Asian powers wanting to cooperate with Western powers, namely the European Union and the United States. So that's sort of where we find ourselves today. And I think the United States has a very um, unique opportunity right now, given the current uh, global situation with the war in Ukraine, particularly. Yeah, that's I, I'm just thinking how this would be complicated. It's it's one thing. Hey, we're competing for the same resources or, you know, for access to these resources. But we have some some serious uh, geopolitical friction going on between these countries. What do you see that either gives you encouragement or maybe even a, a little bit of a pause for, oh boy, <laughs> this is not this is not looking good? Sure. So I actually view this as an opportunity for cooperation with the United States and Russia and China. So um, as I mentioned in my piece, there's a trade corridor known as the Middle Corridor, which is uh, a corridor that's sort of been in development for several years that goes through Central Asia and toward Western markets. And so China in particular would greatly benefit from this corridor operating seamlessly and um, at high capacity. So I think it is really a good opportunity for the United States to cooperate with China and find sort of an off-ramp for the current high tensions with the potential conflict over Taiwan. Um, and I think that Chinese uh, technology along with American technology could help make this middle corridor more efficient and remove any certain bottlenecks. And so I think that this is really a good opportunity. The more challenging obstacle, as you could say, is Russia, given that Russia really likes to have a monopoly on trade routes, given that the Central Asian countries have relied on Russia um, for their trade routes, namely the um, 
northern corridor, which spans through Russian territory. But um, the war in Ukraine has really proven to be an obstacle for these traditional routes that flow through Russia. So um, Russia, even after this war ends, will likely want to have alternative routes in case of future conflict. And so I think that the United States would do well to sort of frame the middle corridor as an alternative for Russia to access international markets as opposed to a direct competition with the northern corridor. I, I'm curious, too, who is who's more likely and who's less likely to uh, to be willing to cooperate? Because I, I see I see a lot of hostility on the part of the U.S. government um, towards both Russia and China. I'm not saying that we're the only ones, but uh, it seems like there, there'd be a lot of uh, resistance to overcome uh, in, in our own backyard. Yes, absolutely. I think that the current administration is has a very staunch stance in terms of being very adversarial towards China and Russia. Maybe this strategy will need to come with a future administration, but I think that having these ideas pushed forward, I think, is very important for the the common the um common discourse because um, we need to really find avenues to be cooperative with these great powers. We have to coexist with them um, in the global system. And I think that Central Asia um, cooperation is a very unique opportunity. And these countries really want to be goodwill um, partners of Russia, China, and the United States. And so I think that that, um, this really should be pursued. Are there any uh, are there any particular personalities here in the U.S. that that might be well suited towards heading up that kind of of uh, diplomatic bridge building? Absolutely. So senators like Marco Rubio have actually been quite um, instrumental in fighting against um, what is known as the Jackson Vanek Amendment, which is um, an amendment that was passed in 1974 by President Gerald Ford, which essentially put these Central Asian countries on a blacklist a tri- uh, where they would not be able to have normalized trade relations with the United States. And so Marco Rubio has been a, co- a co-sponsor of a bill to remove Kazakhstan from these list of countries. Um, so I think that he, um, from the legislative level, that could spawn potentially some future legislation that would maybe provide for a more cooperative environment for uranium trade relations with um, not only the Central Asian countries, but also with Russia and China. we got a just, just a little bit over a minute left here, but I have to ask you, China has seemed pretty confident that, uh, hey, this century is our century, and with, with the growth that they've seen and, and some of the resources that they're going to need, um, how likely are they to be open to, to this kind of, of cooperation? So China and the United States, both of their economies are highly intertwined. And this is the United States and China are going to have to coexist and find areas of cooperation. So climate change cooperation has been one of the few areas where China and the United States have maintained um, stable dialogue. And so I really do think that this is an opportunity for um, the United States and China to find off ramps um, and 
as I mentioned before, the middle corridor really is a good commercial opportunity for China. So finding mutual interest there would be um, greatly beneficial to both powers and the world as a whole. Well, I'll tell you, the conversations I've had with uh, with Young Voices contributors like yourself lead me to believe that uh, small modular nuclear reactors are, are the way we need to be looking. So I'm going to be watching stories like this with great interest as we move forward. Absolutely. I totally agree. Again, we're talking with Alex Little. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Alex, for people who want to follow your work, where can they find you on social media? Where can they find your writing? Yes. So I actually do not have a Twitter at the current moment, but please feel uh, free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I will be posting my articles there and you can find my prior work there as well. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome a new contributor on board today. Jordan McGillis is joining us. Jordan is a Paulson policy analyst at the Manhattan Institute and an adjunct fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute. Jordan, great to have you on the show. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I got my start uh, in D.C. through an institution called the Institute for Energy Research, um, focusing on energy and environmental policy. And that led me to have this deep interest in materials generally and trade around natural resources, um, which is the topic of this latest National Review piece of mine on gallium export controls. I now work at the Manhattan Institute, as you said, uh, and I recently actually took over as the economics editor of our magazine, City Journal. Um, So for any listeners out there that uh, want to stay up to date on pre-market energy, electricity, and uh, economic policy in general, please check out cityjournal.org. Let's talk about gallium. Okay, now I'm, I'm not right. a chemist and, and I, I'm not even a geologist, but um, I understand this is, this is a pretty important, uh, is it a mineral, um, rare earth mineral? Uh, what, what exactly is the importance of, of gallium? Gallium is indeed a mineral. It's an element. Uh, it is not, however, a rare earth element. Um, it is quite common, um, but it's one that, uh, that takes a somewhat sophisticated refining process to get into the pure form you need for things like semiconductors. Um, And that refining process has, in the last 10 years, become dominated by China through explicit public policy. Uh, They basically have um, subsidized and incentivized aluminum smelters in China to uh, produce this gallium as a byproduct of the aluminum production process and have driven down the global price. Um, So now China basically uh, produces the entirety of the world's gallium supply, which gives it, in its own mind, um, an exploitable economic advantage, uh, which led to it imposing a new export control last year on gallium. So it developed this um, monopolist position nearly in the, the global economic system, and now it's saying we're going to put an extra control just to make sure we know who it's going to. Interesting. Now, a wrinkle has appeared, though, and that is uh, the discovery of gallium deposits in Wyoming. Talk to me about the significance of this. Well, what I think this latest gallium find in Wyoming can tell us is that the idea that you can control global commerce with an export control or some other coercive policy is misguided. The second you impose this new cost on buyers of a commodity on the global market, they're going to look 
for other places to get it. They're going to see that price signal rising and they're going to, that's going to incentivize production elsewhere. And that's what's happening here. It's going to make production in the US uh, economically um, something that may be viable down the road uh, as, just purely as a result of the fact that, that China has um, self-imposed a, a new control which frightens buyers of that commodity. We're not only seeing development in the US, but also places like Greece and Germany have said they intend to develop their own gallium supply chain. Um, and with other minerals, um, you'll see this as well as, as China both develops a, a sense of economic clout about itself, but then uh, imposes these costs on their potential customers, leading them to, to look elsewhere. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, I, I guess the U.S. has had to pretty much play ball according to China's rules for, for what, the last 35 years? Well, on this gallium issue, it's, it's much more recent. As late as about 2014, uh, there was a very balanced global production. Several countries in, in Europe were producing gallium. The U.S. hasn't produced any domestically in quite a long time, um, but there were plenty of, um, of, of stable and rule-of-law-based countries that did produce it. Due to the subsidies that, that China introduced about a decade ago, they were able to take that global commanding position, but it's a rather it's a rather new event, and it can quickly be undone because, as I said, gallium is not exactly rare. Um, it's it occurs in uh, various compounds naturally, and that's what they found in Wyoming. the The company is calling it a, a rather valuable bundle of minerals um, out in the town of Sheridan, Wyoming. Uh, and what's fascinating here is that that mine um, sat dormant for decades. Uh, the company owned it, but hadn't really checked out what was down there. Used to be a coal mine, in fact. Um, and it turns out there's a lot of valuable stuff. And when the the global price of commodities like gallium rises, it incentivizes business businesses to do just that. Let's see what we've got. Let's see how we can make the most of it. So, what does this mean for Wyoming? Are, are we going to see the cowboy state suddenly uh, taking on a new status because of this well, find? Wyoming is a major resource-producing region of the United States. It's a serious coal exporter, um, and having this additional resource uh, potential is, is certainly going to give some tailwind to that, that state economy. It's, it's a state that we all know politically has outsized influence, um, given that it has a population under a million, but uh, has just as many senators as my home state of California. But it also is an economic heavyweight in the resource extraction and export industry. And this just contributes to that. Fascinating. Um, I, I'm just curious, uh, the industries that, that are related to this, in other words, uh, you mentioned uh, semiconductors, just mm -hmm. to give us kind of a feel um, for, for, I mean, I think uh, my laptop, yeah, computer, so among is, other things. Why is gallium important? That's, an, that's a, a key question here. Gallium is one of the elements that's going to be at the forefront of the next generation of semiconductors that are going to be used in things like electric vehicles. Uh, gallium is going to provide a more efficient and secure electricity supply through that, that vehicle from the battery to the, uh, to the motor and you know, into, the, into the road, ultimately to move that thing down, down the highway. Um, the most important producer of semiconductor uh, semiconductors in the world, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company has said gallium is going to be their go-to material for this particular uh, application. So it's something that is at, um, of economic importance around the world as EVs become more popular and also mandated by many governments. 
Uh, and now we've got this wrinkle of the politics around um, the resource supply being thrown in. So it's a fascinating topic. There's both the cutting edge of technology and then the co collision of geopolitics and, and the competition between uh, the less free China and the U.S. anchored freer economies of the world. Talk to me about the implications of uh, what will this mean for, for instance, environmentalists? Because it seems like um, anytime, you know, a new, a new commodity or a new uh, resource is discovered, environmental concerns are going to be a part of that conversation. What, what are we hearing on this? Well, on this particular issue, uh, I don't think Wyoming is a state where, where we see um, a preponderance of the sort of uh, anti-development politics that, that we see elsewhere. But, you know, I, I may not have said 10 years ago that North Dakota would have been a font of those things, but with the pipeline plans in that state, we saw some of the biggest environmental protests ever. So it's certainly possible that you could see, um, you know, a confluence of nimbyism and uh, some anti-development, anti-growth environmentalism coming to bear here. And the the paradox, of course, is that over time, development of resources enhances our economic potential. It allows us to uh, use less. There's a, a book by Andrew McAfee that focuses on this idea of dematerialization. The more technologically advanced we get, the less physical stuff we need uh, to have cool products that are useful in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and with these, these chips getting smaller and smaller, we're seeing that dematerialization process at work. Um, and developing resources to make better chips is just going to enhance our economy in a in a cleaner, less materially intensive way. So shutting down development of resources doesn't necessarily mean you're using less of them in the long run. That is a great point. I wish more people could, I, I wish everybody could hear you make that, that point. Um, so that's exciting. I mean, the, the next time I drive across Wyoming, and I, I don't do it too often because there's not a whole lot to see, but uh, it's encouraging to know that, uh, you know, there's, there's more than, than meets the eye. You know, some people just see antelope and sagebrush, but apparently there's, there's some pretty important stuff just below the surface. Dig beneath the surface, and Wyoming is a world of wonders. Absolutely. Um, Taiwan. I just, I just want to get your take on sure. um, tensions between China and Taiwan have been ongoing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, in your opinion, do, do you see something like this exacerbating the situation, or could this possibly become maybe a... a, a pressure relief valve that that helps them find some kind of common ground. As you say, uh, this is a potential flashpoint for conflict. Uh, there are um, many threatening warning signs from Beijing. Um, and we just had an election in Taiwan in which the, the victorious candidate Lai Qingde is uh, considered provocative by Beijing standards. So the, the risks around Taiwan continue to grow. Um, TSMC, the semiconductor company, they have downplayed the, the consequences of, chi of China's export controls on gallium um, for their supply chain. Of course, they have, uh, you know, incentives to downplay it. They don't want people, they don't want investors to get worried. Um, you know, staying within the bounds of law, companies will tend to downplay concerns about geopolitics. Uh, but as, as we've seen with this development, in Wyoming, and then as I mentioned in my National Review piece, the developments in Germany and in Greece, there are a lot of uh, places where you can get this particular resource. So it may be actually the case that this does lower tensions because maybe Taiwan won't be, won't be dependent on that supply chain. Again, we are talking with Jordan McGillis. Uh, Jordan, where can people find you on social media? On the website formerly known as Twitter, you can find me at 
Jordan McGillis. And again, I'm at the Manhattan Institute and our publication is City Journal. Please check that out as well. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment of today's show. I'm happy to welcome a new contributor to Young Voices. Her name is Agustina Vergara Sid. And uh, first of all, welcome to the show. So good to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. Yeah, so like you said, I'm, I'm Agustina. I'm an immigrant to America. And I write uh, and speak about the intersection between immigration policy and philosophy. And I advocate to bring the ideas of freedom to Latin America. And uh, I immigrated to the United States from Argentina because I believe deeply in American values like individual rights and capitalism. And I want my country of Argentina and the rest of Latin America to start embracing those ideas as well, the ideas of freedom. Well, I have to say, um, the, the new president of Argentina, Javier Millet, is definitely making some waves. He he is speaking more of a more you know freedom favorable tone than, than I've heard from pretty much any political leader in a while. What are, what are your impressions of of President Millet? So my impression of Millet is overwhelmingly positive. Um, I do have some criticism, which we can discuss later, but. I think he's doing things right in the big picture. I don't agree with every single measure he's taken, but he is doing something that absolutely needed to happen in Argentina, which is to bring back government, bring back the state to its proper role. Because the size of government in Argentina is absolutely massive. Uh, state is, the government is everywhere regulating so many aspects, especially the economy, and it has such little respect for individual rights, for private property in particular. And Millet understands the importance of private property. He understands the importance of uh, getting government out of the way so people can be free and flourish. I love that he's very unapologetic about that, too. I've heard more than one person say, could he run for president here in the U.S.? <laughs> I don't disagree with him. I, I would just love to, to hear that. Now, you make a point, though, in your article uh, published in the OC Register that it's, it's, it's important that uh, we don't just go around in tear-down mode. In other words, he has to be able to build as well. What are some of the key areas where uh, Millet could, could be a builder rather than just uh, you know, a restrictor or tearer down of, of bureaucracy? Yes. Yeah, so uh, when I say build, I mean build proper government institutions. I don't mean that, you know, government has to actually have a role in building anything or providing that sort of service of, you know, uh, like building housing or things like that. Not at all. What I mean is Millet has to understand that contrary to what his anarcho-capitalist philosophy will tell him, government is not an unnecessary evil, like he claims. It is a necessary good. So he rightly opposes uh, socialism and other types of authoritarian government. He's very vocal about it. And I endorse pretty much everything he said about that. But no government is no better than that. Uh, government is necessary for protecting individual freedom. Uh, now, he, in theory, he calls himself an anarcho-capitalist, which means, you know, government, if, if we are to achieve true freedom, government must go. Now, what he actually has been doing in practice is a little bit, it, it's better than that, in my opinion. 
One of the things that Argentina needs desperately is to build the proper institutions that make for an actual good government, for a very limited government that protects individual rights. Those things are the military, the police, and the courts. And he's been doing so far a good job, for example, at um, empowering the police to, you know, actually go after crime and go after the people that are violating other people's rights, for instance. Argentina, for the last, I'd say, close to 20 years, pickets in the street and uh, people protesting on the streets and blocking the streets. I'm talking like some of the biggest av- avenues of every city, including Buenos Aires, the capital, made it impossible for people to circulate, to get to work, to, you know, attend to their uh, their daily activities. So... That was something that was incredibly disrupting in Argentina. I lived in a a smaller city, the second biggest city, uh, Cordoba, and I lived downtown. And I lived like right in the main uh, avenue downtown. And at least twice a week, I couldn't get out of my house, essentially. Couldn't get my car out to go to school, to, you know, one time I had to take my my, uh, pet to the vet and I couldn't do that. And and he he was in, in very bad shape because of street blockages. So now Millet finally has said, okay, if you want to protest, by all means, but you do not block the streets and you do not prevent other people from circulating. You have no right to to trample over other people's rights because you have a right to protest. So he has empowered the police to break up these pickets, to to break up these, um, these street blockages, to allow people to circulate. So that is one of the good thing the good things he has done. Other things that can be done is, you know, um the court system in Argentina, the judicial system is in very bad shape. There is very justice takes extremely an extremely long time to 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 achieve. So that is like a judicial a big judicial reform is something that he uh he would do well to carry out. And I think he might be planning on doing that. And the military in Argentina is a very sensitive topic because we had military coups in the past that were very bloody and extremely authoritarian. But because of that, people are very skeptical of the military and the military has been reduced to almost nothing in the last several years. So what he needs to do is he needs to empower the military for it to, you know, carry out its proper role, which is to protect the country from foreign invaders and terrorists and spies and things like that. Uh, He has taken some steps towards that goal, and I think that is a good thing. It seems like there's a very delicate balance that has to be taken. And I agree with you that good government is a blessing, and and limited government is what I mean by by good government. But it, it seems like it's in the nature, in the DNA of government to gradually expand and grow and to creep into areas where it wasn't intended. Um, I'd, I'd just be curious on uh, how, how can we set up a system that governs enough to protect our, our rights, but not so much that it starts to, uh, to grow beyond its boundaries? Well, I think that part of it is educating people on what the actual role of government is. So education cannot be substituted. So even if Millet governs, uh, you know, these four years and then four more years, he's not going to be able to change a culture, uh, to educate the culture to the extent that they will. um, Those changes happen with education, not because we have a libertarian precedent, right? So I think education is important. That's part of what I try to do, educating people and showing them, look, 
you don't need government in every single thing that you do. You, in fact, you will be better off without government meddling in every single aspect. So I think part of the important thing that Millet is doing right now is he has deregulated the economy to a great extent. He has gotten rid of price control, for instance. Price controls have been a thing for almost 20 years in Argentina, and people don't know how, to, how prices work in a free market. So part of what happens is people don't know from experience that if you don't buy a product, the price goes down. If it's too expensive and people don't buy it, the price will go down. So that is what is starting to happen in Argentina. So part of what's that the practical experience that people are getting, are that of course, a lot of prices are going up now with the deregulation because the the absolute disaster, not just of the 20, of the last 20 years, but of the last 100 years in Argentina, that's going to take a really long time to settle and to become stable. But part of what happened, for instance, is meat was extremely expensive. He deregulated price controls and, and meat went, the price went up a little bit, right? And then people were like, you know what? I'm not going to buy meat. I will just eat something else because I cannot afford it. And what happened? Surprise, the price went down. People are getting that experience. So it helps to have a, a president, uh, a government that is advocating for limited government. Uh, but a lot of what needs to happen is people need to understand and be educated on the fact that government is not necessary for the economy. Government is not necessary for education. Government has a very limited role in protecting individual rights. And that is it. We have about one minute, but I have to ask you this question. What is Mile doing in regards to money and, and particularly sound money? Is he taking any steps there? Yes, he is. So a lot of one of the best things that he's doing is he's cutting public spending. He's cutting it dramatically. The the amount of spending from previous governments was absolutely obscene. It's hard for me to express it because it's hard to believe for like an American audience, but there oh, were, you uh, you might be surprised <laughs> what, well, I've, like, what I've seen one, our own like, government instance, do. <laughs> one, yeah, I know. But like, for instance, I'll give you one absurd example. Uh, there were like so many people employed by the government that didn't have a job. There was this building, uh, government building that had uh, like something like 20 people to run the elevators. And wow. the building had no elevators. Wow. So like you see like that sort of thing. And he's cutting spending on many other things too. Uh, but... It is he, he's that is one of the main things that he has to do, and he's doing it, in my opinion, pretty well. Okay, I wish we had more time to talk about this. This is so fascinating. Again, we're it talking is. with Augustina Vergara Sid. Um, she is a Young Voices contributor. Where can people follow you on social media? Yes, so you can follow me on X at um, Agustina V Sid. So it's Agustina, that's A G U S T I N A, not A U G. Uh, and then the same handle for Instagram as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ryan.